today on 1019 WDET. Now we want to slightly shift gears and look at the role of health disparities along racial lines in relation to the coronavirus and how that fits into these protests that are happening all over the country. The crux of many of these movements centers on addressing the police brutality that killed George Floyd and so many other people of color over the years. But that's just one piece of a complex tradition of systemic racism in the United States that insidiously and frequently manifests itself in the chronic illness of African Americans. Our next guest has spent nearly his entire career in social epidemiology, looking at how the stress of just trying to live as a black American results in chronic health conditions and lower life expectancy. Dr. Sherman James is the Susan B. King Distinguished Professor Emeritus in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Dr. James, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much, David. Yeah. So this virus has exposed the vulnerabilities of people of color and people living in poverty. Let's start with getting to the root of why these vulnerabilities exist in the first place. It is a manifestation of systemic inequality. Yes, uh, that's, that's exactly right. And as you mentioned, um, the COVID-19 uh, epidemic, pandemic, uh, has revealed uh, these pre-existing racial health inequalities and have exacerbated them. And it's going to take um, take us a long time to recover. And unfortunately, uh, there's every reason to expect that African-Americans will have um, a longer time recovering from this crisis than perhaps other groups. Mm. Uh, racism as a public health crisis is something of interest and purpose for you professionally. Um, talk about when that started being something that you were focused on and, and concerned with. I mean, this is something that has been with us from the beginning in America. Yes. Well, I began my career in the 1970s, early 1970s, uh, teaching at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in the Department of Epidemiology and School of Public Health there. And there was a lot of interest at that time by the senior faculty and the um, racial differences, black-white racial differences in um, high blood pressure and heart disease. And I was recruited um, right out of graduate school to provide a um, perspective, really a, a psychological and social perspective on what might be um, you know, some of the stress-related factors um, contributing to these uh, long-standing um, racial differences in cardiovascular disease. And um, so I had the opportunity to uh, interview some black men um, who, who were going to be a focus of a, of a large um, NIH-sponsored study that we were going to conduct in the eastern part of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the men that I interviewed was named John Martin. I did not know that his name, his middle name was Henry, <laughs> but his full name was John Henry Martin, and he was a retired sharecropper. And um, he told me his life story, uh, how he was born into this very impoverished family in the early part of the uh, 20th century and decided that he did not want to uh, really be a little more than a slave, uh, working hard and giving half of his um income from working on the farm owned by a white a white uh, landowner um, 
and being in perpetual debt. So he worked extremely hard um, after purchasing, um, with the bank loan, purchasing about 75 to 80 acres of farmland and um, worked night and day, he and his wife, to pay it off. And they managed to do so in five years. But he came down with a, a whole series of um, what we, I think, can confidently say um, stress-related diseases, high blood pressure being one of them, and um, osteoarthritis being another. He was very, he was suffering from a very severe case of osteoarthritis when I met him. Um, and he had, um, in his in his 50s, he had such a severe case of peptic ulcers disease that he had to have 40% of his stomach removed. And I didn't know uh, that his middle name was Henry until his wife came to the hmm. To the uh, to the door, we were sitting in the backyard talking, and she said, "John Henry, it's time for lunch, um, and bring your guests with you." So I looked at him uh, in astonishment, and I said, "Your name is John Henry." He said, "Yes, John Henry Martin." So then that got me thinking about the legend of John Henry, mm-hmm. the steel driving man, and how he had to go up against uh, a very powerful uh, machine, uh, if I may equate. Uh, the machine that John Henry Martin went up against as the sharecropper system, uh, the legendary John Henry went up against uh, the machine uh, that um, uh, really represented a, a threat, you know, in terms of, of uh, technologically induced uh, unemployment. And uh, he competed in this uh, epic contest and beat the machine, but he, he died immediately from exhaustion. So mm. it seemed to me that oh, this is really very interesting that this sharecropper, this retired sharecropper's name was John Henry Martin and and seemed to me to be a powerful echo of the, the legend of John Henry, how African-Americans are put in situations where they have to just go all out, uh, literally work themselves to death uh, in order to, um, you know, to survive um, and, and try to move forward. Uh, and make things a little bit better for the next generation. Hmm. And as I thought about uh, the life story of John Henry Martin and the legend of John Henry, uh, it seemed to me that both were emblematic of the of the experiences of African Americans. Uh, that African Americans, um, really since the beginning, have been put in what I call the John Henryism situation, right. where they have to call upon all of their resources to deal with um, to deal with structural racism. And certainly, the sharecropper system was a very good example of structural racism, and the legend of John Henry was a very good example of structural racism, because recent historiography has um, determined that John Henry, the steel-driving man, was a convict laborer. Mm. So if you think about it, um, the sharecropper system that uh, came into being uh, you know, after, after the Civil War and convict labor, the first sort of manifestation of mass incarceration, also came into being after the Civil War. And both of these were systems that were designed to exploit the labor of, yeah. of black Americans and to keep black Americans subjugated yeah. uh, within uh, um, a system of white supremacy. You know, I, I wonder and, what you make of this moment and the protests. Uh, we've got about two and a half minutes left, but I, I really want to get your sense of how... All of these things seem to converge uh, at this moment. The, the, the health disparities, the, the attention to systemic racism in other forms, all 
sort of boiling over in our streets? Well, I think that um, I think that it, what the current moment uh, reveals to us um, is just how structural racism continues to uh, undermine the health of, of, of African Americans, mm. and uh, it, it structural racism takes on a, a different face different form uh, and different points in, in American history. And, and black Americans have, have always sought ways to, to resist that uh, at the individual level by, by refusing to be subjugated, by working hard, by doing all that they can to, to advance. And then in the form of um, a social movement, the civil rights movement, uh, to come together as a collective and, and to resist these forms of of subjugation, and and I think that this is what we're seeing we're seeing now. We're seeing Black Americans, um, and not just Black Americans, but other people, whites, other people of color, uh, coming together to, you know, to resist um, uh, these forces of, of structural racism that undermine that undermine the health of of, of African Americans, and it's it's more apparent now how how devastating. Uh, structural racism is it's more apparent now than it has been in a, in a very long time, mm. and and people are are indicating uh, the degree to which they place a very high priority on doing something about this. I mean, they're putting their lives on the line. They those who are going out protesting know that they are putting themselves at risk in terms of being exposed to the to the virus, being exposed to police brutality. But what they're telling us is that um, they want a better society. Yeah. They, want a, they want a society where it's safe for uh, people of color, particularly African-Americans, to live. And, and I, think that that's, I think that's an admirable thing. And one thing that we know from, from, from history is that when people come together in this way to, to work to change, uh, to change the way that structural racism manifests itself, compromises the health of people of color, again, particularly African-Americans. And when they manage to hold politicians accountable for the way that uh, life-enhancing resources are allocated, mm. we see very quickly the, the beneficial health effects yeah. uh, accruing to those who have been marginalized. Yes. Okay, Dr. Sherman James, it was really great to have you here with us for this conversation. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Mm. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. Uh, we're going to talk with an expert on race, gender, and the Internet about this idea of performative solidarity through protesting in real life and online. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.